Well, hello, Mosaic. My name's Phil. I serve as one of the pastors here. So good to see you guys today. And uh, we'll get to our guest speaker here in just a minute. But, um, you know, January is, uh, in our American culture, is set aside for a number of things to kind of call attention to them. Uh, one of them is that it's, uh, it's National Blood Donor Month, so that's a good thing. Uh, it's also National Soup Month. So we've got that going on here in January. Uh, not so much here at Mosaic, but you know, in our culture or whatever. It's also National Hot Oatmeal Month. So apparently oatmeal needed an advocate, right? I don't know why anybody would eat like cold oatmeal. That just sounds horrible. But, but uh, more importantly, more important than any of that is that it is also uh, National Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And, uh, and that is a big deal for us here at Mosaic. That is a, a, uh, an issue that we have stepped into in a major way over the last few years here at Mosaic as we uh, really love to come alongside of children that are coming from hurt places and step into their lives. And, uh, and we've done that through a couple of our, our global partners. One is the Butlers, who you might remember from a few weeks ago. We did a global partner interview uh, up here on stage with the Butlers, and they're working with Agape International Missions. We love what they're doing. And then our other partner in the area of human trafficking awareness and prevention is Love 146, which was founded and is directed by Rob Morris here. Uh, and Rob has been a good friend. Welcome him. Yeah, that's great. Rob has been a good friend for many years, and uh, I first met Rob almost 10 years ago and, uh, when I was working at a different church in upstate New York. And um, when I first met him, you know, honestly, in our, in our American culture, people didn't understand that human trafficking, that modern-day slavery actually existed. Uh, people were just kind of oblivious to that concept. They thought, no, 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 we, we dealt with that a long time ago. That's, that's over. Uh, and, and in fact, it's, it's not. And so organizations like Love 146 and Agape International Mission exist because that is still a reality. And, and Rob and his organization have been really a huge part of uh, sort of bringing awareness to our culture that this is something we still have to deal with. And so you have been in the trenches for a long time. We appreciate it. And we're so glad to partner with you here today. Well, I want to welcome Rob, and he's going to open up God's Word with us today. Thanks, man. Well, thank you. It's good to be back with you. And I really, really mean that. And that um, just, ah, water. Um, Two days ago, I was speaking at a university in Minnesota, and it was 17 below zero uh, there, where it actually was, it hurt to be outside. And then last night, I was talking with my wife. We live in New Haven, Connecticut, and last night, I was talking with her, and she said, the snow is just coming down. It's like a winter wonderland. So when I say that it is good to be with you, I really, really mean that it is good to be with you. Outside of the weather, um, I want to say thank you. It's good to be with you because of your generosity and your partnership um, has been just mind-blowing. You've been able to enable us to do uh, the work that we've been uh, doing over the the last few years, and I just want to say thank you uh, for that. Um, If you're like me, um, maybe you believed like I did when I graduated from high school, I thought that slavery ended. 
with something that we call the Emancipation Proclamation, but the reality is that slavery still exists today in some of its worst imaginable forms, and many of those victims of slavery um, are children. And so Love 146, those of you that are not familiar with our work, we are working to end the trafficking and exploitation of children, nothing less. And we're doing that through prevention um, as well as uh, caring for survivors, children who uh, this has actually happened to. And our work started in Asia. We've grown, we've, we have uh, a safe home for boys, a safe home for girls in the Philippines. We expanded from Asia, training caregivers all over Asia, and then we went into the UK, and we've been doing survivor care in the UK as well, and that has been rapidly expanding. And then we're also working here in the United States. We're, we're doing survivor care here. This is not something, sometimes we just think, oh, this is something that just happens over there. Um, and, and at least that's what I thought 14 or 15 years ago when we first started. Um, but it is a reality here, right in our own towns, our own cities, um, and we're working to stop that as well. So we're caring for survivors here in the United States, and we've also been doing prevention education here. Um, since 2010, we've been able to reach almost 20,000 children right here um, in the United States of America. So you are responsible for helping make that a reality, and we're looking toward the future of launching also into Africa, and you're a part of that as well. So thank you for your generosity. Thank you for caring um, about creating a safer world for children and being an active part of that. We deeply, deeply appreciate it. Oftentimes people ask, what can I do um, uh, to get more involved? I want to show you three quick things that you can do to get involved. One is to pray. I would assume that most people here uh, this morning are praying people. Um, if you want to be part of our prayer team, this is a vital piece of what we do. If you text Love 146 to that number, 411247, you'll get a prayer update from us um, maybe once or twice a month. We're not going to blow up your phone or anything like that. It's just maybe once or twice a month. And usually, sometimes it's an emergency type scenario. This is what's going down. Something's happening right now. Could you pray? And man, we love that we have people from all over the, the place that begin to pray. And then also sometimes throughout a month, you'll get a celebratory type text saying, hey, thank you for your prayers. This is what just happened. And it's because of your prayers that, that, that have been so helpful. So if you want to um, dig into that area, I'm always blown away when I go to churches and I meet with people um, after a service and people will come up and say, man, I've been praying for Love 146 since the beginning, or I've been praying every day for Love 146. You're part of my daily um, prayer times. I'm so encouraged by that. So please, if you're interested in that, become a part of that. If you're interested in helping sustain our work, we're, we're dependent so much upon our monthly donors, monthly sponsors who, who give on a monthly basis so that we can um, strategize. It's super helpful to know what's coming in so we're able to be strategic um, in our planning and in our work. If you want to become a monthly partner, we'd love to talk to you about that out at the table afterwards. And then if you want to get even more hands-on, um, what's so beautiful about Mosaic is that we have a Love 146 volunteer team that has been birthed out of this church, which is just awesome, which is a group of activists, of people who are like, man, I want to get my hands dirty. I want to be boots on the ground and looking at what trafficking looks like right here um, in our own area and doing something significant and meaningful about that. If you're interested in becoming part of that volunteer team, we'd love to talk to you about that out back as well. So what I wanted to talk about um, today is, uh, is hope. Um, 
this past summer, last summer, I uh, was celebrating my, my 54th birthday with a friend of mine who also celebrates his birthday the day before mine, and we're the same age, or he's a year older. And we were out to dinner together, um, and, and as we're having dinner celebrating our birthdays, we realized that after some time, I was talking about how, like, I'm, I've got to, I don't know how many of you have to do this, but I have to wear these now when I read. Like, if I go to, like, um, a, a restaurant in order to be able to read the menu now, especially if it's a, if it's a candlelight dinner or something, it's so unromantic at a candlelight dinner. Oh, wait, I got to take my glasses out to be able to, to read the menu. But that's my life now. And, and, um, and at the same time, talking about how, yeah, I'm losing my sight, man. What's going on? I also was talking like um, uh, I, I've lost uh, almost all of the hearing in my right ear. I, I'm always like in awkward conversations. If you talk to me after the, the service um, and you're on this side of me and you're talking to me, I'm not ignoring you. I just don't hear you. I played for years and years. Most of my life I spent in playing drums in a rock band, and, I, and we didn't have those fancy technological wonders of in-ear monitors, and so I just had big monitors right on the sides and just blasting guitars, and now I'm paying for it. My parents warned me, kids, listen to your parents, man. My parents are going to lose your hearing one day, and now I'm in that, in that place, and so we're talking about, I'm losing my sight, I'm losing my hearing. Then we just started laughing, recognizing like, oh my gosh, we're those old guys that are complaining about our aches and pains and our hearing and our sight and stuff. And we just start laughing. And then I was like, at the same time I'm losing some of these physical capacities, I'm finding that something else is happening in me that is much more encouraging, and it's internal. That in the last few years, I've been seeing something very significant happening in me internally in that hope is rising in me like a phoenix, man. And I can't, and I've been trying to figure out why is that happening? Because everything around us should be saying, this is not a time to be hopeful. In fact, I had a person recently just say, man, to be hopeful anymore with the madness of what's happening in the world and all around us, man, it's, it's, it's just foolishness. And I'm thinking, first of all, you said that to the wrong person. But secondly, I disagree. I think to be hopeful now in the madness of what's happening in the world is actually an act of defiance. And so I found that there's this thing happening and I'm trying to figure out how is this happening? Why am I becoming more and more hopeful when really when I look around me, it should be just the opposite, especially with the work that we do. Our heads are buried in some of the darkest stories imaginable day in and day out. And yet at the same time, hope is rising in me. So I'm trying to figure out what is this? If I could figure this out, I could write a book and make a lot of money. Like I'll, I'll be able to, yeah, to pitch hope. But there's something significant happening. And so I've been on this journey to try to figure out where is that hope coming from? And this is what I've come to the realization of. There are two kinds of hope that I find that I'm dealing with personally and that we deal with even as an organization. And the first kind of hope I'm talking about is what is called a hope deferred, a hope that is postponed or put off. And the second kind of hope is what I just mentioned is a defiant hope. And so I, the first thing I wanted to talk about is this hope deferred. In Psalm 40 verse 1, I found an interesting passage and the psalmist says this, I waited and waited and waited for God. Can you feel that? I mean, the psalmist could have very easily just wrote, I waited for God, right? But can you feel the ache here? Can you feel the longing? That he wasn't content to say, I waited for God. He said, I waited, and I waited, and I waited for God. Some of you in this room could totally, how many of you can relate to that kind of waiting? That the thing that you're hoping for, the thing that you're longing for is not coming to pass and you're in this waiting mode. How many of you are really great at waiting? 
<laughs> Nobody ever raises their hand for that. I mean, if you did, you could write the book too and become a New York Times bestseller if you could figure out this is how you re- wait well. Most of us don't wait well. And here's this psalmist in the same place. I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. The thing I'm longing for, the thing I'm aching for is not coming to pass. And then in Proverbs 13, verse 12, it talks and describes what happens during this waiting really well when the, the Proverbs says, hope deferred, and the word deferred means postponed or put off, hope postponed or put off makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. This, this is such a powerful description that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Many of us can relate to this sort of heart sickness that happens and develops in this place of waiting for the thing that you're longing for to come to pass and it's not happening. Very easily and very quickly, this heart sickness starts to develop. And we've experienced this even in our personal lives, us as a family, in that um, I have six kids, my four youngest are adopted, we're in the process of adopting our seventh child right now, and anybody that has ever been involved in the adoption process understands what this waiting feels like. Well, we've waited for some of our children to come into our family. We waited for years on paperwork and waiting and paperwork and waiting and longing and aching and all of that. And, and then finally, when that time comes, when, when a child joins our, our, our family, there is that sense of a longing fulfilled becoming a tree of life. But back our, our last adoption, we adopted our daughter from, uh, from Vietnam. And um, we, we uh, waited for some time to bring her home. We finally did, and we felt we wanted to do this again. We really fell in love with, with the people of Vietnam, specifically the children we wanted to adopt from Vietnam again. This was eight years ago. Um, and then the, the adoption program coming from the United States, adopting from Vietnam, closed down. And so we waited year after year, almost eight years. The adoption process finally opened up again as, as Vietnam became a Hague-compliant country. And last year, we full-on began this process again. So for almost eight years, we've been longing, aching. I want to introduce you to our soon-to-be seventh um, child. This is, um, well, thank you for that. That was really sweet. Oh, um, that's, an, that's an appropriate response. Um, this is Tai Min. Um, she is going to be seven years old next month. And here's what's interesting about the adoption world, is that there is a term or a category of children in the adoption world called waiting children. And that word is used in that category. A child falls under that category for one of two reasons. First of all, because they've been waiting for a long time. But the reason that that is happening is because either they're an older child and there's not a lot of people lining up to adopt older children. That's why we have a foster care system in this country that is full of older children waiting for a family of their own and waiting to to be able to be welcomed into a family. Or a child has special needs or disabilities because there's not a lot of people signing up to adopt children with disabilities or older children or Sometimes it's a sibling group. Well, Tai Min is considered a waiting child because she's almost seven years old. She's an older child, and she, uh, she has Down syndrome. So she checks both of those boxes of disabilities and in an older child. And so my wife and I have started thinking, and we've transferred our own thoughts and longing and ache, thinking, what must it be like to be her? What must it be like to be a child under the waiting category? I waited and waited 
and waited. Talk about a heart sickness that can develop of a hope deferred. Time men for six or se- almost seven years now have seen other children, some of her friends in her orphanage, have families come to adopt them, and she has remained. Another family comes and adopts them, she has remained. She has re- I waited and waited and waited, and we started thinking about her heart sickness and what might have developed over these years of waiting. And then I think about even the work that we do. And oftentimes, one of the greatest heart sicknesses that we see in the children that we work with at Love 146 is when justice hasn't happened for them. When their perpetrator has not been caught, when their perpetrator has not been brought to justice, they often walk around, it's like an open wound. In fact, one um, uh, girl in our care said, she says, it's like a thorn that's in my heart that I can't pull out, knowing that he's still out there, this person that had, that had sold me, this person that had done these horrendous things to me, and they have not faced justice yet. And there's this open wound, and there's this ache, this hope deferred thing happening that they struggle with, this heart sickness. And I remember two children, specifically young girls who had come in into our care at an early age, and, and, and they waited, and through a ser- series of horrendous situations and circumstances, we were prevented in seeing justice happen for them. We were unable to find the predator who had um, uh, hurt these children and abused these kids, and these kids, you could see it in their face. You could see it in their eyes. There was a heart sickness there of knowing that justice had not happened, and week after week, there was this heart sickness. Year after year, four years going by, and then finally, this past May, their perpetrator was captured, was sentenced to 20 years in prison, and it was like the house lifted off of their shoulders. Their entire countenance has changed since a longing fulfilled has become a tree of life. But that, just as much as that longing fulfilled becoming a tree of life is a reality, so is the heart sickness that develops in a hope being deferred. So how do we learn to keep hope alive? Not just in the waiting, but what looks like in the midst of a gathering storm. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but man, it's hard to watch the news anymore, right? It just seems like the world is going mad. I mean, we see all the craziness happening all around us from what looks like increasing violence, increasing racism, increasing terrorism, a political system that's going crazy. We have the visuals on TV, on 24-7 news, of the bodies of child refugees washing up on the shores, fleeing violence in their own country, and it's just inundated all the time. There's this sense that, man, the storm is just raging and getting stronger, And first of all, I don't think that's necessarily reality. I don't think things have changed or things have gotten any stronger or more or or, or darker. I think it's always been there, but now we have access to 24-7 news and every social media channel imaginable and everybody's opinion on the news being thrown in our faces day in and day out. So there is this sense, if you would, this perception of a gathering storm. How do we remain hopeful in the midst of what looks like a world going mad. And so I, this imagery of a storm has captured me because uh, back this past year, I was at my parents' house and there's a picture of my grandfather, a framed picture of my grandfather um, on my dad's dresser. And my grandfather was the quintessential Hemingway's old man in the sea. Um, he, when he went in the early 1900s, when he was 17 years old, he signed up to start sailing the tall ships all over the world. And he spent most of his life sailing the tall ships all over uh, the world. And I was enraptured by his stories when I was a kid. I remember days sitting at his feet, listening to him tell his stories of sea. And the stories that always captured my attention the most were the storm stories. The stories of him being stuck in a 
in a storm that's battering his ship. And I remember one story in particular where he said the storm was so bad, his job on the ship was actually steering uh, the ship. And back in those days in the old tall ships, they had those old like pirate ship steering wheels, you know, those giant round steering wheels. And, he, and he, I remember this one story where he said they actually had to tie him to a post next to the steering wheel so that he wouldn't get swept overboard because the waves were crashing over the ship. And as a little kid, I'm just like, this is awesome. And, and I loved those stories of the sea. And then I started looking at our, my family roots go to the sea. And, and in fact, many of my relatives on my dad's side were people who were at sea. In fact, uh, where my grandfather is buried, um, in, uh, he's buried in a little fishing village in Nova Scotia, Canada called Advocate Harbor. And if you go to this little village uh, cemetery, almost everybody in the cemetery is related to me. They're all Morrises. And you go through the cemetery and it's all like Captain William Morris, first mate Stephen Morris, and all of these Morrises. Like, and so I've always had this thing as from growing up, I'm like, I come from the sea, you know, and I don't, but I have these roots that go back to the sea, and it kind of makes me proud of like, wow, you know, I come from a really hardy um, a lineage of, of uh, seafaring people. Um, but, you know, when I think about this, and, I, and I, you know, I've, I've loved the stories of like Moby Dick and Shackleton's ad, ad, adventures, and, and I, so in my like learning about the sea and life at sea, I discovered this really interesting position or title of a specific kind of mariner who lived in ancient Greece and would work on the ancient um, ships way, way back. And you know how you'd have like a captain, you'd have a navigator, you'd have a first mate? Well, in ancient Greece, there was a a kind of mariner that you'd find on these tall ships um, called an archegos. And the word archegos in, in Greek basically means um, uh, ca- uh, captain or trailblazer or pioneer. That was, that was what the, the word archegos in Greek means that. That was his position. And he wasn't utilized very often. The only time that he would be utilized is if a ship ran aground on its attempt to get into a safe harbor during a storm. And oftentimes that's what would happen is they would try to get into a safe harbor when a storm would erupt at sea and sometimes before they could get to the harbor their ship would be run aground on the rocks and once it ran aground it's going to be battered to pieces by the waves and everyone perishes before they even got to land. And so the Archegos' job, he was the strongest swimmer on the ship, and his job on the ship was when something like that happened, and those rare occurrences when it happened, the Archegos would take a rope, and the rope would be tied around something solid on the ship. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew are hiding down under the decks, waiting to die. This guy would tie the rope around his waist, one to the, one end to the, to the ship, the other end around his waist, and he would literally dive into the madness of the raging sea and storm and swim as hard as he could, having his body slamming and bashing up against rocks, trying to swim to shore. And when he got to shore, he would tie the other end of the rope onto something solid like a rock or a tree or whatever, which created this lifeline for all the people that were hiding under the decks, absolutely terrified to make it to shore safely, because now they can just go across the rope and make it back to safety. Can you imagine the courage that it took if you were the Archegos, that the very thing that is terrifying everyone else and they're hiding under the decks waiting to die, you actually are going to immerse yourself in it. You're actually looking into the terrifying madness of the storm and saying, I'm in, and this person dives into that, risking his own life to create hope and and survival for the rest of the people on the ship. What a job. To me, that is a picture of defiance. 
defying the storm. The storm's not going to make me hide under the decks. I'm actually going to face it. I'm actually going to go into it. And you guys, I have this simple belief that if there should be anybody on the planet right now that is marked with a sense of defiant hope, it should be followers of Jesus. But everywhere around me now, I'm talking to people, I'm seeing Christians running around like chicken little, like the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and are freaking out and and are are full of fear. And I think the world is in desperate need of archegoses of hope. People who look at the madness and are not afraid of it, but actually believe that another world is possible, that actually believe that actually we could be a part of changing some of this madness and diving into it. That, to me, is a sense of resistance. It's a sense of defiant hope. I love Margaret Wheatley, the author. She says it this way. She said, hopelessness is not the opposite of hope. Fear is. Fear is. Imagine if we were a people who were marked first of all, where Jesus says, man, people are going to know your mind by how you love each other. If we were marked by love and we were marked by a defiant hope that in the face of despair and darkness, we are a hopeful people. How attractive is that? How attractive is that? Trailblazers and pioneers of hope. So how do we become a people of defiant hope? Here are some things that are helping me. I'm not an expert in hope or anything like that, but in the work that I do, in the life that we're leading, um, I'm trying to dig into this stuff. Here are a few little nuggets that maybe will be hopeful um, or helpful uh, to you. Here are some things that I'm finding that are helping to develop a sense of defiant hope um, in me. One, first of all, I'll be honest, I think I have some of it in my DNA. In that back in 1961, my my parents gave birth to their first son in 1960. And in 1961, they were debating about having another child. And yet they didn't have a lot of resources. My my family was not well off. And so they were debating on, man, do we have the money to even bring another child into the room? And they were looking at the madness of the world back then. Every generation thinks, oh, this is the worst it's ever been. Well, my parents in 1961, those of you that are old enough remember, we were in something called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Remember, anybody remember this? This was it. This was the end of the world, man. It's happening. In fact, President Kennedy issued a decree encouraging Americans that if you have any spare money, now is the time to invest it in a bomb shelter that you can build in your backyard. In fact, back in 1961, I've seen it. You can Google this. You could buy a bomb shelter from the Sears Roebuck catalog. So, so I mean, seriously, I mean, I, when, I, when I was a kid, the Sears Roebuck, it was just the wish book, the Christmas wish book that I looked at because that was what you did around Christmas time, picking out what you wanted for Christmas. But my parents are looking at bomb shelters in the Sears catalog and they're debating, do we spend the money because it's going to be costly to bring a child into the world or do we spend the money on a bomb shelter? Baby, bomb shelter, baby, bomb shelter. And at the same time, they had the thought that so many of us, th- I think even now I hear from young people saying, man, do I really want to bring a child into this world the way the world is right now? Do I really want a child to have to grow up in in this madness and all this? So they were in this place of internal debate. Thank God that my parents were defiantly hopeful people and in defiance of the times and the madness of what was happening in the world, looking at the bomb shelter, baby, bomb shelter, baby, they gave in to defiant hope they chose to have a child and that child ended up me. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for a defiantly hopeful mom and dad who went in that direction instead of giving in to fear and despair. That's defiant hope. When I think about archegoses of hope, I don't just think about people like my parents. I think about those that are around us, these examples. This weekend, we're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. An archegos of hope. An archegos of hope. The Mandelas of the world, the Malalas of the world. There are archegoses of hope. Or why are we paying attention to those who are peddlers of fear? 
when there are those who are still archaegosses of hope that are tying ropes around themselves and diving into the madness and the mess. And we as followers of Jesus should be leading that way and that charge. You know, when I think about the organization Love 146, we were birthed and, and we were created because of an encounter with defiant hope. Most of you know the story how almost 15 years ago I was in a brothel with criminal investigators investigating um, the, the situation that was happening there where children were being sold like commodities and standing there looking through these glass windows at children who were about to be sold and abused. And the thing that so struck me was the looks in the eyes of these kids. You know, it's an amazing thing that the human body has an ability to shut down and disassociate and disengage when things get so painful and hard. And these kids were like little robots. They had these blank stares on their faces watching children's cartoons on television sets except for one girl. And my guess is that she was probably new to the brothel because that fight and that light had not been taken from her yet. She was not looking at the children's cartoon. She was staring at us through the glass and it was still this fight in her eyes, this look of defiance as almost as if she was saying, you may take my body but you will never take who I am. And I will never forget that look. I will never forget that look of defiance in that face. Never forget her number which was 146. So it's to remind us, So we, we, our whole organization was birthed out of a, an encounter with an archegos of hope, somebody who was defiantly hopeful even in the midst of unbelievable despair. You know, and I think about even my own children at times take on the role of archegoses of hope. I have our, 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 our youngest daughter, Honor, who we adopted from, from Vietnam about eight years ago. Um, I want to show you a picture here. Um, we had to stay in a hotel room for three weeks while we were there facilitating the process. And in the, at our hotel room door, the, door, the entrance to the hotel room, we would line our shoes up at, at night and everything, and we'd go to bed. And then what would happen is we, we discovered what was happening is every morning we'd wake up and my daughter's shoes were in my shoes. And what she would do is in the middle of the night when we were sleeping, she would take her shoes and she would plant her shoes in my shoes knowing that there's no way that you could leave here without me. I will not be forgotten again. I will not be left behind again. There's no way you could put those shoes on and leave without me because there's my shoes in your shoes. And every night she would do this and it was just, I mean, we were wrecked by the power of this sense of defiance, of this determination of like, man, this is not going to happen to me again. An archegos of hope. You know, I think about the children in our care right now. I was just in the Philippines recently. I had a couple of, uh, of donors and, and a couple of pastors with me, and we're, and we're sitting there, and we're watching the kids in our care begin to break out into singing worship songs. And these pastors that were with me just had tears coming down their faces. These children were celebrating life and worshiping God. You know, later, later on that, that uh, a trip right before that, actually, I was at an, another time when we were at the safe homes where the boys and the girls all gathered together from our homes, and they're having a big dance celebration. And at the end of the dance, uh, or at the beginning of the dance celebration, the, we had a sound system set up, and one of the caregivers in the home acted as the DJ. And she turns on, the first song she turns on is, Watch Me Whip, Watch Me Nay Nay. <laughs> And our kids just knew it. They just kicked into it, and they're dancing up the storm. And I was stunned. I actually had to sit down. I was so overwhelmed emotionally by watching kids who you think shouldn't even have a reason to smile again, dancing their hearts out. Sometimes we think hope is something that will happen to us. We have this passivity when it comes to hope of hopefully things are going to turn out. That's not hope. That's optimism. And optimism doesn't last very long because of the harshness of the circumstances all around us. 
But these are kids who are aggressive about hope. They're aggressive about claiming their childhoods back and claiming their lives back and to watch them dancing. And I'm sitting there, I can't even move. I'm stunned, I'm sitting there watching this and I catch the attention of a five-year-old girl in our care who's across the dance floor and she stops because she sees me sitting there and she has this look on her face kind of like, this is never gonna do. You just sitting there. And she makes a beeline through the dancing kids on the dance floor. She comes over to me and she grabs me by the hands and pulls me out on the dance floor. And you guys, I whipped and I nay-nayed like there was no, no tomorrow. I don't even know what that is. My kids are terrified at the thought of that. But man, that's what you do when the defiantly hopeful ask you to come out onto the dance floor, right? Our chaos is of hope. That same trip I held in my arms, the youngest child that we've ever brought into our care who had just turned one. You guys, this is a baby. A family member had sold this baby to a child, uh, uh, a cyber porn ring. A baby, one year old. I'm holding this baby, absolutely wrecked at the reality of what has happened to this baby. And it's just a short few months. And I'm holding this baby in my arms, just completely wrecked. And after a while, the baby, she, she started getting fussy and she started crying a little bit like babies do. And as, as she did, one of the older girls who've been in our care for some time took her from me. And she just, took, just held the baby. And then another girl came over and sort of surrounded her. And, and I watched as one at a time, the older girls who've already been in their care, who have been aggressively getting their lives back, who in a way have been tying ropes around their waists and diving into the mess and the madness and the craziness have now created this line of hope for this little one that as she grows up, she'll be able to see that it's possible. Recovery is possible. Transformation is possible. I can get my childhood back because I see it around me and you and you and you. Archegosses of hope in the lives of these children. Stunning stuff. What right do we have to give into fear? And to despair. And then to seal the deal, we have the greatest archegos of hope imaginable who we say we follow, Jesus. Right? Check this out. This is going to blow your mind. Acts chapter 3 verse 15 says, you killed, this is Peter, 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 no, he doesn't pull any punches here. You know, miracle takes place, gathers a crowd, and he just goes for it. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. The word author there, if you look this up in the original Greek, the word for author is archegos. The word archegos is used four times in the entire Bible to describe Jesus. And this is one of them. You killed the archegos of life, but God raised him from the dead and we're witnesses to this. In Acts chapter 5 verse 31, it says God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. The word prince comes from the Greek word Archegos. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer, the Archegos of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. And in Hebrews 12 verse 2, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus the Archegos and perfecter of our faith. This is, just blows me away. What a picture of what God has done. We just celebrated a month ago this thing that we call Christmas. 
the incarnation, which is the visual picture of the archegos of life, the author of hope and trailblazer of our salvation, basically tying a rope around himself, immersing himself into the mess of our humanity, showing up as a vulnerable baby in a manger, creating this line, this hope, this, this lifeline for us. What is Calvary but a depiction of an archegos of hope who has gone into death, literally into the grave and hell and back out again, out of the raging storm and has solidified that line so that we have hope of all people. We have hope. But I don't think it's enough to be content to just being inspired and resting in the fact that we have an archegos in Jesus who've gone before us. I think we are called to be the same for others. We're called to be a people of defiant hope who really jump into the stormy seas and lead the way for others who find themselves shipwrecked. I want to close with um, a, a reading from an author by the name of Rebecca Solnit who says this, and yes, I will have to put these on to do this. <laughs> to hope is to gamble. It's to bet on the future, on your desires, on the possibility that an open heart and uncertainty is better than gloom and safety. To hope is dangerous, and yet it is the opposite of fear, for to live is to risk. I say all this to you because hope is not like a lottery ticket that you can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. I say this because hope is an axe that you break down doors with in an emergency, because hope should shove you out the door. Hope just means another world might be possible, not promised, not guaranteed. Hope calls for action, and action is impossible without hope. The work of hope requires people who throw themselves actively into what is becoming, to which they themselves actually belong. Anything can happen, and whether we act or not has everything to do with it. Could you stand with me? You know, maybe you find yourself even today feeling shipwrecked by despair and hopelessness. Maybe you feel like you're being overwhelmed by what looks like a strengthening storm. I want to encourage you to look around you. Look for the archegosses of hope because they exist everywhere. I guarantee you a place this big is full of them if we just open our eyes and look and let that be the thing that causes that same hope to rise up in us that we become archegosses of hope for those around us. The old song says this, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I mean, we just sang a refrain earlier. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop this archegos of hope, this author of life? Father, I pray very simply 
that you would cause hope to rise up inside of us, that we would be a people who are marked by a defiant hope in the place of darkness, in a place of what looks like a gathering storm. We would be a defiantly hopeful people. In Jesus' name, amen.